Amen, amen. You guys may be seated. Well, welcome this morning on this uh, wonderfully warm day. Thank you for being here with us. My name is Walter. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm grateful you guys would worship with us today. A few things to note as we begin. First and foremost, if you would like to give, you're able to give in a variety of ways. You can give as you exit. You can give online. You can even text a number or scan a QR code because we are in the 21st century. You're able to give in a variety of ways. I want to encourage you to continue to give and support the mission of the church. One of the things that we get to support on this special Sunday is not only celebrating God's grace with Torrance and Jamie being with us, but we also get to support Operation Christmas Child. So I want to encourage you to give generously towards that, and we'll talk more about that at the end in our Christmas in July celebration. Now, we are continuing our summer series here in Psalm 42. We are in Summer in the Psalms. We are simply studying God's Word and looking at the full width and breadth of human emotions, really looking and experiencing all that God would have for us and these kernels of wisdom we can draw forward. You know, the Psalms are a part of the wisdom literature, and these are intended to shape us into the people that God has intended us to be. As we look at Psalm 42 today... I've got a question for you. Have you ever been thirsty? Yes, yes, some of you are thirsty right now and it's too late, we started, you're stuck. But you've been thirsty before. Now, I want to reiterate that as we think about this question of thirst, this isn't just a, I could use a drink, it'd be nice to have something to sip on, but no, I will die if I don't get something. You know, if you ask afterwards, I'll tell this story about how my wife uh, chose for me to die while she should go see the toucans in the San Diego Zoo, but that's a story for later. Come to the small group tonight, you'll hear that later. Here's the reality. We've all experienced real physical thirst. If you have lived in the South for any amount of time, you know what thirst is. It's challenging to deal with. Yet, what do you do when there's no relief to this thirst? Picture yourself in the middle of the desert. Your water bottle is empty. You're surrounded by nothing but sand and the wells are dry. What do you do? What do you do? Today's passage is not looking at this idea of physical thirst, but rather is looking at a spiritual thirst. See, this passage is written by the songwriters of the temple, And they're writing it particularly about David and his experience, a very personal experience he had in his life. See, much of the Psalms, David either wrote or they're even written about him expressing portions of his life. And today, as we look at this Psalm, we're going to look at a passage that's likely seems to be written about David's life and his experience during his son's rebellion. See, David has a pretty complex family, if you don't know that. Uh, multiple wives, uh, multiple sons, multiple daughters. I mean, a very complex family here. Lots of half-siblings, right? It's, it's a convoluted family tree, to say the least. But among his sons, he had two in particular that are relevant to the story today. One of them is named Amnon. And Amnon wasn't a great guy. Amnon assaulted the sister of one of his half-brothers in this story. His half-brother's name is Absalom. If you're a student of the Bible, you've heard some of these phrases before. And Absalom is understandably upset about what has happened to his sister. He's so upset that he decides that he has to have revenge on Amnon. 
No one else seems to care. No one else wants to do anything about it. So he's going to take matters into his own hands. So he conspires with his buddies to help Amnon have a little extra to drink one evening. Amnon had a problem uh, with the bottle, so to speak, and he enjoyed his wine and spirits. And they waited until Amnon had had a little bit too much to drink, and Absalom shows up with his soldiers and kills him. Now, he flees because David, rightfully so, is angry about the death of his son. And he's rocked that his own child would kill another one of his children. Now, Absalom has fled, and the story could perhaps end there, that he's gone and revenge has been had, but no. He has no relief from his bitterness and his rage. As he sits in exile, he's convinced that all of this is David's fault. All of this is David's fault. If he had just been a better man, then Amnon would not have done this. If he had just done things right, Absalom wouldn't have had to have been driven to this extreme of murder. He says it's all David's fault. He's convinced that David must pay for his crimes. So he returns to Israel and launches what can only be described as the best PR campaign in history. Because in a matter of a few days, he has all of Israel turning against David. He's gathered some soldiers who are loyal to him. He's convinced David's advisors even that David is not worthy of being king and that Absalom is a better choice. With their blessing, with the army in hand, he marches upon Jerusalem. And David must flee into exile to protect himself. The story ends a few verses later and David does fight against Absalom and we've heard in previous weeks David was a warrior. David was not someone to trifle with and he wins this battle against Absalom but at a steep cost. See the scriptures tells us that this ends with over 20,000 dead Israelite warriors, countless more women and children killed. One of the casualties includes David's own son, Absalom. I give you that context because the songwriters are writing this psalm from David's perspective during this rebellion. He's gone into exile. He's trying to gather an army to take back his kingdom. And frankly, it looks like he's going to lose everything. His kingdom, his standing, his army, he's going to lose it all up to and including his family and his life. In this, the songwriters are writing about something unique. You know, they could have written about David's valor as a warrior. They could have written about his prayers for his enemies to fall. But no, they write about a spiritual thirst that David had. Have you ever thirsted for God? Asking him if he would show up? Have you ever wondered if relief would come? If we're willing to be honest with one another, and you know me, I like honesty, right? If we're willing to be honest with one another, we have asked that question before. Will you come, O oh God? Is there any relief to be found? If you felt that, then you understand where we're at. If you haven't felt that, you will one day. 
And so if we're here and we're being honest with one another, we know that we're going to thirst for God to show up, to arrive, to do something that only he can do. What do we do? What do we do in the meantime as we're waiting and asking that question, God, will you come? You see, I believe the writer of this psalm is striving to help us understand this thirst and show us how to deal with it. If you would, would you jump into Psalm 42 with me? We'll go straight into it. It's a little bit longer, so I won't make you stand. We'll jump right in. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Look with me at verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? You see, the first section we're going to look at is lament and thirst. As we enter into this passage, we're met with this clear declaration of lament. Now, you might be asking, what is lament? Well, conveniently, I have the answer for you. Lament within the Bible, this is described as a type of psalm that's a a mournful prayer. This starts with this feeling of desperation, of, of affliction. Simply, it's written out of real pain by real people. What that means for us is we're studying the Psalms and studying the width and breadth of Scripture. This means that there are people out there who are a part of God's story, who've been written and put in this book, who get what we're going through. They understand exactly what it means to be in distress and to ask, is there relief, Lord? Jesus himself is described as one of these people in Hebrews chapter 4. You can go look at it, but he's described as a great high priest who has been tempted and tried in every way, yet has remained perfect and sinless. We have this confidence, this assurance that there is someone out there who gets what we're going through. Now, these verses begin with a rather striking statement, right? It says, dear pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. That's vivid imagery. And we've got to get some context here. What's going on? What is happening in David's life right now? Well, you've heard this story. You understand he's in the midst of turmoil and the stress. And simply put, right now, David recognizes that he has no access to the temple. You see, in his position, he is aware that he cannot properly go worship the Lord. In fact, he has trouble even coming to the understanding of how can I reach this God? I can't worship or engage in him in the same way I've always done. I have no access to a holy place. How am I to find relief? How am I to find this God? He's in what is perhaps one of the hardest moments of his life. And he's simply asking, God, when will you show yourself? God, when will you come do what only you can do? God, where are you at in my story? I think we can empathize with David's plight here. You see, we've all been in those situations where we've asked the same thing of God. 
right? Just like David, we've wondered if he would show up. We've wondered if we're being disobedient by even expressing those doubts. Yet I would argue that those very doubts are reflective of the work of God within us. I want you to look clearly at what David is asking for here. He's not asking for relief from his circumstances. He could ask for escape from his enemies, right? That'd be fair. He's got an entire nation that's come against him. He's not asking to win this war because that would be rational, right? If I win, we're done. What is he asking for? He's asking to see God in the middle of these dark days. You see, these doubts that we have, that as David and you and I experience, these are doubts that are found, that are beginning in the recognition of who God is. You see, we're asking God to be who he is and to show up in the middle of darkness and brokenness. We're saying that we love God and that in this moment, seeing him in this moment will be the only thing that satisfies our thirst. See, David, for all of his flaws, understands that he does not need an army. He does not need a victory. What he needs is to see God again. And in the midst of his cry, this longing, this thirst, he's proclaiming to God that what I need is you, Father. See, it's this longing, this thirst to see God again. This is our first step to, towards dealing with this spiritual condition. What David is dealing with is what can be described as spiritual depression. That he's weighed down by his circumstances and he's saying the only escape, the only relief I will find will be by seeing God. He understands the truth that even if he's pulled out of these circumstances, what is his condition? He's still broken. He's still tired. He's still in need of seeing God yet again. Now these are painful enough as we're dealing with these introspective things. We're wrestling with our internal feelings and emotions, yet David's not just dealing with these internal things, but he's wrestling with external weight. Verse 3 tells us that he's being taunted by others. You see, they're looking at his circumstances and they're asking, where is your God? David right now is perhaps hiding just outside of Israel. In these foreign lands with people who do not worship his God. And you can imagine the mocking and the jeering they would have. It. Look at this king. King of what? A nation that wants to slaughter him. If your God is so great, then why are you here in exile, David? If your God is who he says he is, why have you not taken back your throne? David's afflicted on all sides. There's no relief for him here. Yet we have a, a shift in his tone in the writing here in the next few verses. What's changed? What's different in verses 4 and 5? Well, I'd submit to you that David has found the cure for his anguish. 
He's found the cure, the thing that will change his heart and give him the ability to understand his circumstances. Look with me at verses four and five. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of the Lord. With glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude kissing festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. In these verses, we see that he begins to present the cure to his anguish to himself. You'll see that uh, in the next few verses, it's like we're riding a pendulum. He's, he's dealing with his anguish. He's in despair and turmoil. He's dealing with it. He's in despair. As Spurgeon says about this, this psalm, it's like he's two men. The psalmist is talking to himself. His faith reasons with his fears. His hope argues with his sorrows. And he swings back and forth. See, in the midst of this, David is like us. He's fighting for faithfulness in the midst of this moment. And in this, he starts to find hope. You see, first, in verse 4, he remembers his past experiences with God. He specifically thinks back on these moments of corporate celebration with God in the temple. He's looking back on these regular times of worship with the body and with God. And he's drawing strength and encouragement from his remembrance of corporate worship. What does this have to do with you and me, right? As always, we have to understand that. You see, I believe that this highlights the importance of gathering with the body for moments like this. You see, what we have here, what we have happening here every Sunday... This is a time of real interaction with a living God. That we're not coming just to sing a few songs, to hear a sermon, to sit in a room. We are coming to interact, to work, to relate to the living God. These moments are intended to fill us up right now, yes, but they're also to preserve us as we remember them later. You see, this affirms the real power and majesty of God in worship with just this one verse. If worship with the body is not a work of the Spirit, then it's meaningless to look back on these moments for encouragement. If there is no power to be found in the midst of the gathered body, then there is no reason to remember. And so, as the psalmist writes these words, David would look back and go, those moments of worshiping with the body, with the family of God, this is a source of strength. Why? Because I know God showed himself in those moments. And if indeed he is present there, then he is present with me now. You see, David is anchoring his faith in the middle of his distress by remembering how real God was in those times of worship. Now the second thing he's doing here that's of crucial importance to us, not only is he looking back and remembering of what God has done, but he's preaching the gospel to himself. That's what's happening in verse 5 right here. 
Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me again? He's asking his heart. He's looking in going, what is wrong with you right now? Why are you feeling this way? What have you lost sight of? And then he proclaims to himself, what you've lost sight of is your hope in God. What you've lost sight of is the fact that he is your salvation and you will praise him again. You see, David's reminding himself of the good news of the gospel. He's simply looking at himself and he's asking, why are you this way right now? You see, he's telling himself, knowing what I have experienced and seen about God's record in dealing with his people, I have every reason not to despair, but to trust in him. He's reminding himself of the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is ever present working in the lives of his people. That if David knew who the Messiah was, he would have said, yeah, that Jesus guy, he's the reason I'm still here. That Jesus guy is the one who's going to sustain me and walk with me and see me through this. You see, David is looking at the God that he knows that he has seen work in his people's lives and his own life continually. And he's saying, this is a God I can be confident in. This is a God I can be confident in because he's got a perfect track record. This is a God who has never been late. This is a God who has never made a mistake. This is a God who has done everything at the right time, in the right way, and I can trust him. One commentator looked at this and is saying that as David is praising God, he's essentially offering a thank you to God. He's saying that I shall praise you again. He's saying, I will praise you in the temple again one day because I will get out of this moment. I don't know how, I don't know where, I don't know what's going to happen, but you will bring me before your holy place again. One commentator said that faith like this makes it possible for you to say thank you before you even receive the answer. That's what David's doing here. He's praising God in the midst of his grief and affliction, saying one day we'll get through this, Lord. One day things will be right again. Notice that he doesn't have all the answers. He doesn't know that he's going to win this war. He doesn't know that he's going to beat his son. He doesn't know that God's going to make all things right again. He doesn't have every one of those details in front of him. But what he does know is that his God has promised to sustain him from this life into the next. And he says, that's good enough for me. That is good enough for me to know that no, I may not win this war. I may lose to my son. I may be in exile forever. I might die. By my son's hand. But God will still be God. This is the good news of the gospel. Nothing in this life depends upon you and I. Rather, it depends upon the one that we have faith in. This is good news. Because no matter how good or how bad we are at anything in our life, we are not powerful enough to wreck God's plan for our lives and for the world. One of the dumbest people I know is myself. 
And if you're honest, you might say the same thing about yourself. But here's what I know. No matter how bad I am at anything, I cannot wreck God's plan for his world. I just don't have that kind of power. It also tells me that it doesn't mean that even if I'm good enough to do things, that I'm not going to ruin things in God's world. You see, this is a completely freeing, liberating position because I know that whether I'm great or whether I'm good, Christ is still on the throne. This is what David's appealing to, this hope, this good news of the gospel that it all depends upon Jesus. You see, the reason for our hope is that Jesus Christ was crucified for our sins and rest in heaven triumphant over death. This is the good news we have. This is the confidence that Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 8. You can go look. We won't read those verses, but he says that there is nothing in this life or the next that can separate me from the love of God. Heights, nor depths, nor power, principalities, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. That's confidence. That's assurance. And in the midst of his turmoil and distress, in the midst of his lament and thirst, David finds the cure where he recognizes that he is assured, not because of his goodness, not because of his skill, but he's assured because of Christ and his position that he will see the end of this story. Now you might think that verse five should be the end of the story for David and for us because it ends on a really good note, doesn't it? But as you can see, the passage keeps going and we enter back into lament and thirst yet again. Look with me at verse 6. And my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Miser. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? We're back into lament and thirst yet again. I very creatively titled this point part two. And what we see here is David's now going back into a time of lament yet again. And maybe you're wondering why, right? We finish verse 5 and we think there's hope, there's this answer. Why are we back here? Didn't we just have this great moment of praise? Aren't we past this thing already? Before we get into the details of the section, we've got to understand something about the cure that David proclaims in verses 4 and 5. You see, it's not enough to just apply this cure in our life once. Now we're better forever, right? No. We continually must preach the gospel to ourselves on a daily basis. See, David has experienced this cure, but now he's back in difficulty yet again. 
You see, David is riding what is best described as the roller coaster of life. Up and down, up and down, again and again and again. See, he's experiencing the full width and breadth of human emotions just like we do. And again, if we were willing to be honest with one another, we would say that our lives are just like David. Things are great. I'm close to the Lord. Things are so good. The world's an absolute train wreck. What am I doing? Things are better. We're good. Going back down the hill again. Y'all pray for me. I'm in the valley, right? But I'm back on the hill, right? That is our life. David goes through the cycle several times in Psalm 42, and he even does it in Psalm 43. I mean, just up and down, up and down. What do we do with that? You see, David continually comes back to this hope, this cure, every time he gets down. When he gets into the valley, his answer is to, yes, say, things are hard, but one day, I'll be back up top again. Not that I'll be king, not that I'll be an authority, not that I'll have my position of power, no. I'll be back with God. I'll see him again. You see, he's committed to this idea that God is his answer in the midst of distress. God is only the answer in the midst of the stress. Describe him like a bulldog. Once he clamps down, he doesn't let go of this idea. He's relentless knowing that this God he serves, his God, is the kind of God who's going to quench the thirst of those who faithfully seek him for living waters. He knows that his God will answer him. He knows that if he hangs on, one day God will make things right. You see, I believe this gives us a greater context for verses 6 through 10. As we recognize he's riding this roller coaster of life. He's hit the mountaintop experience. Things are good and then it gets real again and things are hard. We see this in verse 6 because David's reflecting upon his distress and this distance from God. He references some landmarks here in verse 6. And I think this is important for us to understand See, he's pointing to a mountain range at the far eastern end of Israel. Past the Jordan River, far end of Israel, almost into Babylon, really. And he says, by the time you're here, looking at geographers' studies of this, Jerusalem is just a smudge on the horizon. Beneath the haze of the desert and over the Jordan, you can barely make out that teeny tiny hill of Jerusalem. See, David is again stressing that he's far from home and he feels far from God. See, this isn't a failing of David, but this is the normal swing of emotions that we experience. It's made more clear in the next verse because verse seven brings forth some more distress from David, but also inklings of the confidence that he has. Verse 7 tells us, deep calls the deep at the roar of your waterfalls. 
All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. So this language is echoing some ancient Near Eastern symbols of chaos and evil. David is essentially saying the world is crashing in on me. Evil and despair are drowning me now. It's all falling apart, God. Everything is crumbling. I cannot make this. Right now he's caught within his emotions. He's feeling the weight of his situation. The world is pressing down upon him. It feels like he's sinking underneath the waves as we read that. Yet, something pulls him upward. I want you to notice here that he says, your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. He's not referring to you and I. He's not talking about his possession of them. No, I would submit to you that these words are intentionally chosen to draw our attention to God's sovereignty over these things. See, what the writer is having us see is that, yes, David is in despair and he fears for his life. He doesn't know how this will end, but he believes that these circumstances are not beyond God's control. He says, ultimately, even the wind and the waves have to answer to God. I think this is encouraging because despite all that he faces, everything he's experiencing, he still believes that God is in control. He still believes that God is who he says he is. You see, David is just like us, that core of his doubts in the middle of these trials, he's asking if God is worthy of his trust. If we're being frank with one another, we would say that in the midst of our trials, what we are really asking is, God, are you worthy of trust? Are you going to show up and do what you have promised you would do? And I would simply encourage you that every time we encounter this question here in the book of Psalms, particularly in this psalm, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, that God is indeed worthy of trust. You see, verse 8 continues this conversation, but allows hope to begin to creep in because he begins with this first half of proclaiming God's steadfast love. He uses this language of day and night, and it's intending to echo the time of Exodus, this, this time of God directly, personally guiding Israel through the day and night. Sam Storms notes that he's crying out for a personal experience of the Exodus. He is asking God if he would carry him away from this bondage of present circumstances and take him into the freedom that is found in his presence. He is simply crying out, God, would you take me from this desert land and let me experience the manna that is found in your presence? He's reminding himself of the steadfast love that God has shown him. All the things that sweep over him, all of these things are powerless compared to God and his love for him. See, it's this steadfast love that is a life preserver for him in the middle of the waves crashing down. And what he's doing here, he's praying that this love 
that he has in God, not that his love has power, but the one that he has love and faith in has power, that that one, that person, that being would keep him from sinking under the waves in the middle of his distress. He continues with a reference to the night and to singing in the middle of the night. And it's just here that he's singing to the Lord at, light, at night, pleading for his life. It's clear that this isn't a song of hope. He doesn't feel hope right now in the middle of his oppression. This is a song that is seeking hope. This is a song of prayer and of pleading, pleading for his life. John Piper actually suggests that the very song that the writer is writing here that he's referring to is actually this psalm. That this psalm is one that David sung to himself in the midst of his turmoil and oppression. That they wrote this down from David's words because he was proclaiming this song, singing it over the night. Singing that God would restore him. What I hope you see is that we've got this story of a, of a fellow journeyman who's seeking to find hope while being held captive in the darkness. You see his hope here, his cry of hope is that God has always been with him. And it's his search for hope that leads the psalmist into verses 9 and 10. And here he really is just asking why. Why, oh God, must I experience this? Why must I go through this? Why must I bear this weight? You can see that in his language, he's being a little bit dramatic. He's just had this moment of praising God, of saying, of, of sung of his love in the middle of the night, that I know that he's anchoring me. He is my hope in the midst of this. And the next words out of his mouth of, oh God, why have you forgotten me? Yes, David's dramatic. But in the midst of this, it really does look like God has forgotten him, right? It at least feels that way. He's lost his kingdom. He can't worship the God he serves. His entire country is turned against him. His own son wants to kill him. If that doesn't feel difficult, I don't know what does feel difficult. He continues with referencing these taunts and the condemnation he receives from those around him. Those that are around him, they don't believe that God is for him. They doubt that. They don't believe that God can rescue him from this circumstance. I have to imagine that perhaps at this point, David feels like Job. He's lost it all. Things are getting worse and he just simply wants it to end. He would rather die than put up with this. He's in pain yet again. He's broken. He's tired. What is the medicine for his soul? What's the answer here? He comes back to it in verse 11. Because here we see that the answer is to continue to hope in God. 
Verse 11 reads, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. David continues in Psalm 43, and he goes to this roller coaster again. And what does he end with in Psalm 43, 5? The exact same phrase. You see, the medicine for his soul was found here in this familiar refrain for us. It's found within hoping in God. You see, continually through this psalm, through Psalm 43, David is showing his pain, his fears, his confusion, his anxiety. I mean, whatever you might name as a negative emotion, he's feeling it. He's in the middle of it. Now, he's not laying this out for us just so he can vent to someone, right? He's got a nice cup of coffee in Starbucks in Babylon, and he's just venting with his buddy, right? Like, no, that's not what he's doing. Rather, he is worshiping right now. You see, he's offering what I think can only be described as a proclamation of faith in God. You see, this is the same God who has moved and worked in his life in the past. He's the same God who has not abandoned him yet. And he is saying that I have anchored my hope, my future on this God. He keeps coming back to this truth that God is also at work in his life today and will be at work in his life in the future. John Goldingay is an Old Testament scholar at Fuller Theological Seminary, and he says uh, quite helpfully of this verse. See, he, David, assumes that God is big enough to take it all and loving enough to absorb it. You see, through it all, when we read this psalm in context, we have the story of a man who's in pain, who's hurting, he's afraid, he's worried, he's been beaten down by all that he faces. Yet, there is still this rock-solid confidence that God is who he says he is. You see, my friends, this is the answer to our thirst and despair. You see, it's resting on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. As the hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. This is the truth. And if David were able to speak to us now, if he could physically stand in our presence and tell us the answer to this, he would look upon us and he would say, everything that is here is true. Though I did not know it at the time, God not only sustained me through this present life, but into the next. And the answer, though I could have never told you at the time, was this man who was going to come and his name was Jesus. And it is by that man that I've entered into the kingdom. It is by that man that I've been redeemed. It is by that man that I now dwell in the heavenly places. Though my body has decayed, I have the promise of eternal life and of a new body to come in the new heavens and the new earth. 
You see, if David could speak to us now, he would say, everything that I wrote, everything that I prayed, proclaimed, was true. That he would even save a wretch like me. Perhaps you're here today and you're thirsty. You're looking for hope. You're in the middle of despair. You feel like you're sinking under the waves and you need a life raft. You need someone to rescue you. You're asking, can this end? The answer is yes. Yes, it can. And I won't promise you that Jesus will end your time of suffering. But what he will do is give you hope in the middle of it. Because now your suffering has meaning. Because it's shaping you into the person the Lord wants you to be. Now your, pur- your, your suffering has purpose. Because it's bringing you into a greater view of the Lord. Now your suffering means something because it's not just that you live this life and suffer and it ends. It's that you live this life, you suffer, and when it ends, you dwell in the heavenly places where pain, death, and suffering are no more. You see, it gives us hope in the middle of our trials and difficulties. And so I would simply say to you, if you're here in the midst of suffering, Jesus is the answer. He's the only answer. And today you have an opportunity to trust him. Here in the next few minutes, we'll go into a time of prayer and our worship team will come back up to lead us in a final song. This is your opportunity to respond, to receive this hope that has been put before you. This hope only comes through trusting in Jesus by repenting of our sins and calling upon him as our Lord and Savior. If you're here in despair, in pain, if you're hurting, the cure, the answer is Jesus and Jesus alone. If the Lord is moving in your life, I'd love to hear from you and celebrate what he's doing. We'll be here during the final song and afterwards. I'd love to worship with you and hear what God is doing in your life. But if I might, could I go to the Lord and pray together for us? Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we are grateful for you today. We're thankful though we dwell in the midst of turmoil and distress. Though we ask these questions, will we these things end? When will this time pass? When will we see the light of day again, Lord? We do these things. We proclaim these questions not in vain, but with an assurance, with a confidence that you are at work in your world. Lord, we do not serve a God who is silent, who is dead in the grave. No, we serve a God who is living and active amongst his people. And so, Lord, we simply ask you that if you are real, if you are true, if you are who you say you are, 
Would you speak to us in the midst of our turmoil and distress? Would you come to us and offer comfort, hope, love, and affection in the middle of the desert? Would you let us drink from these living waters so we might experience your presence today? Father, we are grateful for the finished work of Jesus upon the cross. For the love and affection you showered us through him. We ask that you continue to bless us with your presence. Give us hope. Lead us to repentance, Lord. And let us trust in you. We thank you for what you've done for us, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen.